Good morning. Here we go. Um, I'm John, one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to have all of y'all here at church with us today. Uh, just one quick thing that I want to do before we get started. With it being, you know, a young church and still a new church, I mean, less than a year old, uh, we're still all kind of starting to get to know one another. So as much as we can, when big things take place in life of our church, we do want to um, share about those big things. And um, David Hamilton and Deanna Ham Hamilton, David is back there with the locks, back there serving. Him and his wife just had their second daughter, Ori Hamilton. I don't know what the middle name is, but yeah. So as y'all see him, encourage him. He's now outnumbered in his house three to one. So um, pray for him. And then back here, Damon Sumner. Um, he's back there in the blue shirt. Him and his wife just had their um, third kid, uh, Ever Grace Sumner. Um, and so we're grateful to God uh, that our church is continuing to grow um, in a good way. So uh, as you see, both of them and their wives, I mean, when they come in and out, just um, uh, pray for them as it's uh, those of y'all that have kids or know what kids do when they're first born. Uh, pray for them that God would just give them both grace and strength. So if you would bow your heads with me and um, let's pray and pray for God's grace on our time today. Father, we're grateful that we can come in here and celebrate and rejoice in um, just how good that you've been to us, Father. Uh, we sing songs of your goodness, and um, it's one thing for you to be good and for us to, to deserve your goodness, but those songs are all the more sweet when we realize how undeserving we are, but how good you uh, choose to remain to be to us, Father. And so, Lord, I pray that as we uh, read your word and as we hear from your word and are challenged by your word, God, that above all else, we would be reminded that you uh, give us the direction that we should go in. Father, you tell us uh, what to do, not to command us uh, just to lay a heavy burden on our backs, but you do it, Father, to lead us towards joy and peace. And I pray that we would see that, Father. So uh, bless us in our time here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you've probably heard somebody kind of start off or use this word or say, the church is under attack or the church is in danger. Y'all heard that term before, right? Most times when folks say that term, uh, our thoughts primarily go to outside, right? Things that are wrong. As long as Christianity has been here, what's going on is that God's plans for the world have often gone opposed. So when we think of this concept that the church is in danger, right? We think of folks like ISIS that are beheading Christians, Boko Haram, folks that are burning Christians. We think of religious freedom here in our country, right? Where at one time it was believable to think that the U.S. was a Christian nation, and now it's laughable. 
And so when I say religious freedom, what I'm not saying is giving people that are a bad representation of Jesus the license to say and to spew hateful things. But what I am saying is in a world that talks so much about tolerance and acceptance, Christians being told that we're wrong about what we feel like God has said and been consistent in the things that he said for thousands of years of, uh, of um, uh, since Christianity has started. What we're saying is, no, 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 no. We just want the freedom to be able to say the things that we feel and have those tolerated in a world of tolerance. That there's all of these things that feel like that they come from the outside, that they um, stunt our ability as Christians to fulfill what God would have us to do in the world. And we would say, yeah, the church is in danger. Christianity is very much under attack. But there's those here that may not be Christians, or you may feel that you're more of a socially conscious Christian, and you're like, no, 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 my main concern is all of the stuff that goes on in the world. Starving kids, a billion-dollar stadium being built in a city, and the kids that are trying to go to school around the corner are getting slighted, crying, fatherlessness, tragedy. Those are the things that I'm concerned about. And what I would say to you is, I don't think that we're as far as you may think. We, as Christians, are concerned about the same thing, but we've lived long enough in this world to not believe the promises and policies that come from folks from the outside that say that we're going to change it. What we believe as Christians is that God's church, right, God's people that have been saved from their sin, that have been given a new motivation for living, placed in a city that's broken, is the way that God wants to change and to fix and to repair things. So when we say the church is in danger, because consider that our shorthand for saying we want to take care of all of those things, we think that the church, Christians, is what God is going to use to address that. But if the church never fulfills its purpose, then things aren't going to change. And we would go so far as to say that things can't change. Here's the danger, though. I think sometimes we can get so concerned with outward problems that we neglect the fact that there are pitfalls on the inside. We can think that the major problem is external, but I want you to know, even if all of the external problems that hinder Christians from being able to do what God has called them to do, even if all of those were gone, I would start this off the same way and say that the church is in danger. Do you know why? Because even with a big platform to present all of what we hope is true, if you give a big platform to a bad performer, it's going to turn out very, very bad. Um, I grew up in church really my whole life, and part of being in the church that I was, uh, my mom and dad made us all sign up for the kids' choir. Um, 
So I sang, and from first grade until fifth grade, I was under the impression that I could sing. Well, one day as we're singing, um, my friend Jamin takes the microphone, and he puts it up to my mouth, and I start to sing. And the choir director, Miss Paulette Batts, I'll never forget this because it changed my life. She just stopped it all, and she said, who is that? And I just kind of backed away from the microphone and just went out the door and never, never sang in public again. A big platform given to a bad performer really does more harm than good. Even if all the external problems of Christianity were gone, And we were provided with the most amazing platform to share about all the great things that God has done. If we don't take care of this internal danger, it's only going to do more harm than good. So what is that? What is that silent killer that can go undetected, that can negatively affect the church so much and keep us from fulfilling what God wants us to do, not just in here, but out there? Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 6, and we're going to see that come up in the life of the church there, and we're going to get clues for what that is in our lives, how God wants to address it, and what are practical things that you and I can do to take care of that. Acts chapter 6, I'll catch y'all up to speed as y'all turn there. Acts, like we talked about a, a few weeks ago, is just the actions of a group of men that had their lives changed by what Christ has done. And this is chronicling Christianity spreading, exploding across the world. And the reason why it exploded is because when you have a group of broken people who know that they're broken, who know that life as is does not work, and you give them a very real solution, and that real solution works and changes things and heals lives and marriages and jobs and relationships. What takes place is people catch on. So this is what the gospel has done. It's not just this word that's been spoken, but God has really come and changed the lives of broken people. And this message of Christianity is exploding. And what takes place in the first five chapters of this book? There's external problems, people from the outside that are trying to keep this group from sharing this great truth. The government is throwing people in jail for talking about the things that Christ values without cause. Right? Not far from the world that we live in where pastors trying to espouse what God says in his words are subpoenaed for their sermons. So it's this world that is very much against Christianity. But one thing that you find out is that wherever there are these external things that come, right, that try to minimize the light and the glory of what God wants to do in the world, God uses those things for his glory. Like Months ago, when that guy walked into a church in Charleston and killed nine people, and you look and say, this is a tragedy. Folks come into a church to feel safe, and they get killed. What takes place when this dude is at his arraignment? The families of the victims come 
to tell him that they forgive him in the same way that Christ did. And you have people that are not Christian look and say, what is this? So you have all this external stuff that comes down that only serves to advance the gospel. But then in Acts 6, what takes place is there's this problem that comes up that causes the apostles to say, hey, this is so big that we need to bring everybody in and talk to them about this because if we don't address this, it's going to mess up everything. What's that big problem? Read with me, Acts 6, verse 1, and it says this. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, or when Christianity was exploding, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the work of God to serve tables. So what's this, this big thing that takes place? Greek widows bring up this complaint and they feel like we're being treated unfairly. And the very first thing that we see here, that when it comes to the church fulfilling its purpose to be God's light and agent in the world, we see that simple neglect can cause major disunity. Simple neglect can cause major disunity. You don't think of, right, don't think of or don't try to judge the size of a problem by its initial impact. You judge the size of a problem by its eventual impact, right? So a crack in the foundation may seem small, but if left unchecked, eventually the whole house is going to cave in. A leak in your roof may seem small, but eventually the whole house could cave in. People in the church that are dis unified may seem like a small thing, but leave it unchecked. And that small rip in the fabric of the tapestry that God is trying to weave together can rip completely apart and undo all that God would try to do here in the world. Simple neglect can cause major disunity. I want to start off and just say this. For all y'all that may find yourselves in this church or in any church, we hope that the church would be a safe place, but we never want you to think that the church is a perfect place. We have a perfect message from a perfect Savior, but that perfect message from a perfect Savior will make perfect people eventually, but it's on the other side of death. As long as we're here, there's never going to be perfect people, which means this. Disappointment is something that we're all going to have to learn to live with. It's, It's very, very real. The church is a safe place. It's not a perfect place. Problems arise even when God does great things. And so you look here at this church, the gospel is increasing. And do you know what the first 
problem inside of the church stems around? Ethnic tension. We live in a world where we praise and we want to see diverse churches. But one thing that we know about this world that we live in is that all the good things that we see in this world has a shadow to it. All things that are good aren't completely good. They have this kind. And what can take place is that if you view diversity as the end goal, you can forget that diversity makes a terrible end goal because people can be diverse and divided. Unity is the end goal. America is the most diverse country, right, in the history of the world, but it's divided. Diversity is not an end goal. Unity is. But here's what takes place. When you find yourself in a context and you're the majority in that context, it becomes easy to overlook the little guys. So what we see here is, look, this is not overt racism that we see here. It's not people saying you are unimportant. It's not a terrorist group that's outside trying to dismantle this church. But do you know what we do see here? Thoughtlessness, negligence, and oversight. And for anybody that's ever found themselves in a place where they really hope that their needs will be met and your needs aren't met because of an oversight, what can that start to build in your heart? Resentment, frustration. And I want you to know that Satan, he's going to use any little thing that he can to drive a wedge in what God wants to do here in the world. So here's what takes place. The church is a family, right? And when I use that term, don't think that we're just trying to use that term as young folks that are trying to do church the right way in 2016. And we're saying that the church is supposed to be a family and that's the new way to think of church. No, it's the right way to think of church. It's the only way to think of church. It's the only way that the Bible talks about church. So when we talk about this concept of family, these were widows that were dependent on the care and concern of those that were inside of the church, not just to have a good time on Sunday, but to eat and to stay alive. So in this world, if you were a widow and you didn't have anybody to take care of you, there was no social security. There was not a receptionist job that you could go and get. Do you know what you had to do? Be dependent on people to meet your needs. So hear this. When they bring up this first complaint in the church, it's more than just, I don't like the songs that you sing. It's more than just, I don't like the chairs that we sit in. It's more than just, I'm tired of how long y'all preach, right? It's not those kind of complaints. It's, I'm not eating the way that I should because somebody hasn't thought about me. Here's the thing about neglect. 
it often isn't intentional. It's natural. And there are millions of excuses and reasons why we can justify in our mind why it's okay. For instance, Peter has just been in jail. He's been beaten. People are scared for their lives. You and I, we tend to neglect things often, right? But it's natural. There's always an excuse. We're busy. But I just want us to see something as small as simple, honest, neglect can be used by Satan to drive a wedge of bitterness that'll split apart what God's trying to do here in the world. Think, in your own life, how many relationships do you have right now that are full of frustration and resentment and you don't even remember what it was that you started fighting over? How many relationships are full of resentment And you remember it, but you think back and it's like, how did we get here just because they didn't take out the trash? Simple neglect can lead to, I see you pointing over to your wife. Like, see, I told you it's not that big of a deal. (laughs) It's not what I'm saying. (laughs) What I am saying is if those things drive this wedge, then what takes place is this. When the church is divided, God's grace is minimized. As Jesus is leaving the the earth, he reinforces to his disciples, listen, the way that the world is going to know that you're mine is by the way that you love one another. Don't get it twisted. The way that people are going to know what I did for you is if y'all are unified. And so what takes place is this. If we don't love well as a church, then the world will have no picture of what Christ is like. If we don't love well as a church, but continue to say that we're God's church, then the world will have a wrong picture of what Christ is like. Simple neglect, honest mistake, ordinary things, because we're involved in our own world, can lead to major disunity in the church. So I want, what I want us to see here is this, that where there are an abundance of needs, there's ample opportunity to neglect people that have those needs, especially when we're used to thinking about the needs of people that look like us or talk like us or have the same concerns that we do. But when we find ourselves in a context like this one, the one that we're trying to plant the church here, and we find that if God does answer our prayer of filling our church with people that desperately need the hope of the gospel, and our church is filled in years by God's grace with single moms or kids without fathers or folks that have dealt with addiction issues their whole life, people that find themselves in the midst of all of this tragedy as our church is diverse and filled with those folks, if we're not proactive in thinking through the needs, then people may very well come in by the invitation that we give, 
but they'll leave based on the conclusion that, yeah, well, they said that God cared uh, uh, about me, but when I went in there and when I was part of them, I never really felt like them. I heard that God cared, but I never really felt it. So it's not real. Simple neglect can lead to major disunity. So what's the answer? What's the solution? What takes place? Here's what the uh, apostles, the church leaders do here. They want to make it clear to everybody that calls themselves a Christian that fighting for unity is in your job description. Fighting for unity is in your job description. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. That's a big part of what it means to be a Christian. That is the major part of what it means to be a Christian. And so what they do here is they involve everybody in the problem. Read with me, starting in verse 2, and it says this. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Fighting for unity is in your job description. What takes place is this is a problem. It seems like a small problem, but the amazing thing what they do is they say it's everybody's problem. All of us have to be involved or this thing is never going to get solved. It's never going to get fixed. A complaint comes and they involve the whole church. This is what family does. When it comes to you picking what's important in your life, family makes it so that you don't get to to pick what is important in your life. You get to pick who is important in your life, and their needs become what is important in your life. It's only a consumer that thinks of life primarily from what is important, and then from there I'm going to pick who and who I want in my life. If you lead with the what, if convenience, if efficiency, if comfort is the most important thing in your life, then do you know who you're not going to involve yourself with? People like you, people that are inconvenient, people that are inefficient. But if you lead with who, then what takes place is they get to determine the What? Damon. David. Who just had babies here in the past few weeks. Sleep is an important thing. 
uninterrupted time to come home from work and to just chill is an important thing. But they've met somebody. Both of them, daughters, beautiful daughters. And do you know what they've said? I'll determine the what based on the who. And it's changed them. And now they spend their lives serving them. Family makes you pick the who instead of the what. So one thing that I really want to do and really want to make sure that I do here right now is to thank all of the single men and ladies that are a part of this church that have leveraged their singleness, that don't have kids of their own, and don't stand on the platform of that's not my problem. Not just on Sunday, but through the week. There's countless folks here in the life of the church that have given of their free time in order to give couples that are a part of this church that may be undergoing a hard time, just time to get away and to talk and to be together. And that's a great service. So I thank you all. Grateful to God for all of y'all. So what they do here is they try to address this need, which is a big problem, but they don't do it the way that we do, right? Uh, me, Trip, Richard, and Mo, um, all of the pastors had dinner last night with our spouses and we just sat back and reflected on the first year in the life of our church. Next week will be one year and we just talked about the things that were good and, and the things that we hoped that God would do. And one of the things that we hoped that God would do is establish deacons or folks to serve here in the life of our church. And we sat back and I forget who said it, but it was real good. So I'll just uh, attribute it to myself. Um, I don't think that I did, but I'm saying it right now, so y'all get what I mean. They said, man, God is just so wise and gracious in the way that he solves problems. If he would have left it up to us, right, here's what we tend to do when we see a big problem. We take, oh, that was Trip. So Trip wants, <laughs> Trip wants you to know that that was him. Yeah. This is an example of what not to do in <laughs> life. That's a free lesson. Um, what we tend to do is we tend to um, overreact. Or we tend to try to overcompensate. D.L. Moody said this. It's better to get 10 men to do the work than for one person to try to do the work of 10 men. So what these pastors start off, what they say is this. Listen, the issue, the problem that we face is neglect. People not doing what they should do. So what they say here in verse 2 is this. It is not right that we should give up or neglect the preaching of the word to serve tables. That's not them saying we're too good. That's saying no, 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 no. This is important, very important, so important that we had to call the whole church. However, 
what would be wrong or what would be bad is if we failed to do what God had called us to do so that we could spend all our time here. Because then at the end of the day, right, if you neglect a responsibility to solve a pressing problem, you haven't solved that problem. You've just created another one. Right? So it's like, right, if you're trying to cook at home and you need your water cut on and you need your gas cut on. If your water is off and all you have is gas and you say, hey, this is the way that I'm going to fix that problem. Next month, I'm just not going to pay for gas and I'm going to use all that to pay for water. What takes place is next month, water is good, but you can't cook if you don't have any gas. What they're saying is, let's not try to pick which one is most important. Let's just involve everybody in the work so that we can do both, so that we can have water and gas. So when they're trying to establish people to take care of very practical needs, it's not demeaning the practical. Never think that ordinary, plain, practical work means unimportant work. It's very important because it lies at the heart of all that God's trying to do. But what they're saying is, let's make sure that we involve the whole church in this work. Here's one very practical way that we can start off with all of that. For those of y'all that have found yourself here on and off for the past year, consider moving from being an attender to a member. Here at the church, when we outline the family of God, or when we as the pastor sit and reflect on the fact that according to Hebrews 13, one day we are actually going to have to stand in front of God and give an account. God's going to ask us how we took care of the family that he entrusted to us. So from our standpoint, we think, well, we better know exactly who we're responsible for because the last thing that I want to do is to neglect somebody that God has put in our charge. So the way that we've done this, the way that the church has done this, is that it seems as if the the church has this clear example of, of who makes up the church. And the way that we define that here is who are the Christians that have said, We want to make a formal obligation to fight for unity here. So move. If not here, then somewhere. But know that when the Bible talks about Christianity, there are no spectators. There are only participants. Spectating Christianity is disobedient Christianity, if you could call it that at all. God doesn't want us to be on the outside and on the fringes, but to be with a group of people that work for the unity that God wants to use to change the way that the world sees him and looks at him. So one of the things that they do here is they they pick men and they tell the church to kind of pick these men. And this kind of serves as the beta version of deacons, right? This prototype of what is going to be explained 
later. And so we want to take some time and just kind of talk through that as a church, just so that we're all on the same page. And the thing that's tough about that word uh, deacons is that a lot of us have kind of grow up, grown up in church and we know that term and are familiar with it. But the image that it conjures up in our mind is not what the Bible means. So deacons are not primarily the people that walk around and ask for your gum. Deacons are not primarily folks that, right, are in white gloves, as if you can tell, well, they're a deacon, they're an usher, they're a junior usher. Like, that's not what the Bible means when it talks about deacons. Deacons are two things, right? They are servants, and they serve as these shock absorbers. Right? So think servants, shock of of absorbers. Deacons, if we don't know their purpose, then we're going to misuse them. If we misuse them, then they won't work the way that God had intended them to work. If they don't work the way that God had intended them to work as the people that lead out in maintaining the unity here in the church, then what takes place is that the church will neglect important things which could lead to disunity, which could lead to the frustrating or the opposing of God's purposes here in the world. Deacons what they do is they maintain unity by leading the church in the service of practical needs. Look here at verse 3. He starts off and says this, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. As they talk about people that are going to meet very practical needs, do you know what he doesn't start with? Competence or their ability to meet those needs. Do you know what he does start with? Character. Who they are. Are they the type of people that serve? Are they the type of people that are constantly, proactively going out of their way to try to make sure that nobody feels excluded? First Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 through 13. It's going to be here on the screen. I'm going to read it just so that we can get a framework of this. And it says this. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Like, they've really got to know this stuff. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And then you have this one term, it's their wives likewise. That word wives is the same Greek word that's used to be translated women, right? So it's not like this is not saying deacons are always men and their wives have to serve with them, right? We would take this to mean, no, 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 right? Paul just went on and gave an expanded uh, uh, list of qualifications of what you want to look for in a pastor, And he never mentions their wives up there. 
if he was just trying to mention the wife of somebody, right, he'd start off and say, hey, pastors, this is this, and make sure that your wife is this, this, this. But he doesn't do that. So what we see right here is this break, and it seems as if that the text is saying that both men and women serve in this role in the church. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. It just speaks to, if you want to see somebody that should serve in this role, one of the first lines of defense is look at the way that they serve their family. If they neglect the needs of the people that are under their roof, then what makes you think that they would be good to serve God's family or to lead in this way? But if they care and love their family well, then you just want to give them a bigger platform to do the same thing. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The very first thing that he says when you're trying to find these folks and the reason why it's important for the whole church to know this is that what these guys don't say is that the pastors are going to choose them. What they're saying is fighting for unity is a responsibility of the whole church, so it's best if the whole church has say-so in this. And you want to choose the type of people that have this impeccable character. If, if you look through this list, these are the same character qualifications that he gives for pastors. And then you read on in this book, Stephen, the first guy that he brings up. Do you know what takes place by chapter 8 of this book? He preaches an amazing sermon, convicts folks of their sin. They stone him and kill him. And do you know what he says as he's dying? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Does that remind you of anybody? The role of a deacon is not just meeting practical needs, but it's leading in being a visible expression of what our Savior is like. It's so much bigger than just sweeping floors. But it's not less than that. It's showing that a great God cares about both the big and the small. And women, those that are a part of our church, thrive in this role. We talked uh, uh, about it at the class that we've had this week. Most of us that have grown up in church are accustomed to seeing so many churches built on the backs of our sisters. And what we're saying is we don't want this to be an undue burden that's put on them. But we do want our church to know that as far as serving in this way, God has called both our brothers and sisters to lead here. And we want to see that reflective here in the life of our church. Deacons are those that have a servant heart and mind. That's who they are. But then it goes on to what they do. At the end of verse 3, they say this, and we will appoint them to this duty. Deacons, they serve by relieving the tension that is going to take place in a diverse church in a fallen world. Do you know what shocks do on your car? That when you drive, right, there's bumps and 
potholes and all that stuff in the road. And if you don't have shocks, the smallest bumps will mess up your car. But if you have shocks, what takes place is these shocks, they stand in between where this tension would be destructive and they bear that weight and they bear that burden so that the car can continue to do what God has called it to do. This is what deacons do in the life of the church. They care very well and make it their aim in practical ways when death happens, which it will. We don't want to let those things slip through the cracks. We don't want people that are a part of this church to experience one of the most tragic things in their lives and to feel like God doesn't care about them because their needs aren't met. Do you know what we do want? People that will come home, stay up all night, drive an hour and a half both ways just to make sure that the family has food to eat while they mourn the loss of their loved one. When parents have kids Do you know what we don't want? For marriages to be filled with so much tension because there are so many outside factors that a beautiful blessing, such as a kid, that, believe it or not, does have a dark side to it, can mess things up, can create all this tension. Well, this marriage would fall apart because there's nobody to help them bear that burden. Do you know what deacons in the life of a church do? They make it their aim to constantly look out for that. And when the pastors and when the rest of the church are caught up in very important things that God has called them to do, they come to the forefront and say, hey, These people are being neglected. And I want you to know that this simple act of neglect could tear their family apart. We have to do something. And I'm not just going to complain. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and recruit and make sure that we do something as a church. Because what's important is that we fight for unity. While we may lead in the church in verbally expressing the mind of God, deacons ensure that that verbal expression is matched with appropriate action. And people don't just hear about how good God is, but they actually feel tangibly God's care for them. It's not an optional thing in the life of a church. It's important. And if it's not there, things will fall apart very quickly and very ugly. That's why we pray constantly that God would raise up men and women like this in the life of a church to be able to remove the distractions that exist in life so that we can focus on the main things. We want people that exemplify our great God and Savior who when he was on his way to the cross, bearing this cross on his back, about to be killed, 
He's so concerned about the needs of his mother that he takes time to stop and to tell John, hey, John, treat her like you would your mom. Mom, this is your son. And then he moves on. Look at the careful attention that he pays to the smallest of needs. And this is what he calls all Christians to do. And the beauty of what takes place is this, is that when the church is unified, then God's grace is multiplied. When the church is unified, God's grace is multiplied. It shines so much brighter. Look here at Acts 6, 7, and it says this. And the word of God, right, as a result of this. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then it throws on this little thing at the end. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Sometimes we think that the best thing that we could do to reach out to the world is all of the stuff that we do outside of our family. What this tells us is, no, if we give our attention to fighting and ensuring there's a unity on the inside and a beautiful picture of God is displayed, that that's the greatest platform that we have for evangelism. That's the greatest platform that we have to share about all the great things that God has done so that when people accept the invitation and come into our family and our body, they feel and they say, this is better than you said that it was. Solving an in-house problem leads to external change. People are invited into family. And it even starts to spread amongst this uncommon group. It says there, and in many priests, right? What does that mean? Here in this time, you had uh, priests that weren't a part of Christianity, but uh, folks would estimate that in this town, right, there was close to 8,000 priests who were poor because all of this work that they had to do, they had to work to take care of all of the spiritual needs of folks that um, uh, 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 folks that they were trying to reach out to, but they had nobody to come alongside that would think about them, that would care for, for them. And so what scholars would go back and say is that the reason why they bring this up is to show that people that were outside saw the great way that the church cared for those that were inside and they said, I got to be a part of that. I've got to come and investigate why. And they were drawn in. See, service is more than just about practical needs being met. It's about God's name being made much of. It's about God's name being magnified to the point where people that are carrying heavy burdens and heavy weights can't just hear about this God that loves them, but can feel the fact that this God loves them and wants to serve them as they come into a diverse space and see that the little guy's not getting neglected. The person that's in the minority that doesn't have anything to offer is not getting neglected, but they're getting their needs amply supplied. And then when they start to ask why, it points back to a great God who met people like us, who had nothing to offer. But we were so weary and broken down trying to fulfill this internal need of satisfaction. 
Some of y'all may be there right now, and some of y'all may remember what life was like spending your days working so hard just trying to find peace and finding nothing. But then we met Jesus, a God who had everything and looked out at those of us that had nothing. And he met not just our physical needs, as he so graciously does, but our most fundamental need. He died so that we could be made right with God. That's the beauty of the gospel, the message that we hear, the message that has changed us, and the message that changes the way that we serve so that anybody that's tired and weary can turn from the pursuits of this life, can turn from trying to find peace of their own and turn to a Savior that has purchased peace for them by his death on the cross. And where God's people are unified, God's grace goes out. So the question that I would ask is this. How is God calling you to contribute to unity here? Or there? I know this week we've got lots of folks from out of town, but wherever you are, how is God calling you to contribute or to fight for unity? Let's let that be the first question on your radar so that you don't think that the primary plea is us trying to get folks to volunteer to do stuff on Sunday. That's not it. It's so much bigger than that. You're thinking too small if all you hear is we need your help to pull this off. No, what we're saying is we need your help to fulfill God's purposes in the world. And the only way that that's going to take place is if we fight for unity as a church here. How is God calling you to do that? Here's just a picture. As I was sitting this past week praying and reading that, here's a picture that just came to my mind. This is what I want. This is what I want for our church here in the West End, where people talk all the time about things like mass incarceration, fatherlessness, and abortion, and all of these woes. Here's what I want. I want single mothers that are here in the West that feel as if pregnancy for the rest of their life is going to be a a death sentence for them. That it's going to mean the death of all their hopes and dreams. I want people like that that just feel hopeless about the prospect of being able to provide for their needs of their kids with no support system, who feel hopeless about the prospect of trying to raise young men without a father, and who think the only option that I have so that this doesn't take place is to choose whose life is more important. I don't want them to make a choice off of false data. I want them to find a church and a community of Christians where they can come in and feel like all of the concerns that I have won't be neglected. 
though I may never get married and my kid may never have a father in that sense, he'll have a church full of father figures. Guys, it'll teach him how to change a flat tire and what it means to work hard and what it means to keep your word and what it means to love your wife and your kids. That'll help them learn how to take care of their mother. That'll walk with them patiently and see their way to cop. That'll be there when they get married and have a family of their own. Do you know what stands in the way of that, though? Simple neglect. One time of somebody coming in and feeling like my needs aren't met. Do you know what stands in the way of that? Practically right now in the life of our church? Deacons. People that say, the way that I want to serve is by taking care of these practical needs to ensure that that doesn't take place. It's people that would say, I'm willing to do the ordinary things because they're so important for the gospel. So my charge to you is to think, what's, like, what's your role in this? How can you personally here in this church be an answer to that prayer? For some of y'all, it's moving from just attending to being a part of this church so that you can help us towards that end. For some of y'all that are here as a, a part of this church, it's you saying right here and right now, I choose the who. Who is most important to me? And I'm going to let that dictate the what. Regardless of what your role is, I want you to know that you have a role. Pray that God would impress on your heart what that role is. And then one thing that you'll quickly find out is that God has a funny sense of humor. He often makes us the answers to our own prayers. And so as that takes place, we'll be reminded that Hey, problems are big, but they don't have to stay big. An abundance of needs just gives us ample opportunity to share with such a various crowd that we serve a God that cares about you. And it's nothing lofty that we have to do, but something very simple. Serve. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you and we're just floored by your wisdom. This trip reminded us that, um, God, that you've been so good and so wise in the way that you have ordered and structured things and provided us such simple solutions to what seemed like such complex problems. I pray that you would make us those that are eager to serve for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.